We are delighted to have with us this morning uh, Dr. Carlton Wynn, who's an associate minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and the Metro Atlanta Presbytery, uh, also um, a professor at RTS Atlanta. Uh, he's been with us before, but we're delighted to have him particularly as he comes to speak to us this morning in Sunday school, uh, being, as I've called him, I don't know if you'd like this term, an, an expert, uh, someone who can help us out in understanding uh, both Kant and Schleiermacher as we are continuing to study Christianity and liberalism and kind of preparing the way uh, for our study of the book. Well, brother, let me open us up in prayer, and then Dr. Wynn will come and address us. Gracious Father, we come into your presence this morning thanking you for the gift that you've given to us in this day where we rest from our labors and we focus our attention on praising your holy name. And Father, we pray that as we come to be instructed this morning, that you would make our hearts ready to receive and that you would cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as we are instructed. Lord, we pray for the whole day that it would be a day of blessing to our souls and a day where we return praise to you for the gift, the indescribable gift of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I hope you've gotten a handout. If you haven't, make sure you see the deacons at the back to get one. Dr. Wynn, we welcome you. Thank you. Well, what a joy it is to be with you guys. Good morning. Uh, I count our churches as sisters in the Lord, uh, so I bring you greetings from Westminster uh, over in Atlanta. Uh, if you can see on your handout, uh, this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about someone named Kant, uh, Schleiermacher, and Machen. Uh, Emmanuel Kant's going to be the most challenging. In fact, if you were to pick up and read Kant, that's probably what you would say. You would say, I can't do this. Um, that's my only joke for the morning, so it's a bad one. Um, on November 3rd in 1921, Jay Gresson Machen gave a very simple address to a gathering of ruling elders at the Chester Presbytery Elders Association. And I believe this is the same Chester... Uh, Pennsylvania that was about 30 minutes from where my family and I used to live. Chester's about, um, it's southwest Philadelphia. And at this address, Machen spoke about the theological drift in the Northern Church, called the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. And this address was so well received uh, that the elders wanted it uh, written down and, and distributed in kind of a pamphlet form. And uh, Machen did that, but ended up publishing it in an academic journal called the Princeton Theological Review. And the title of that article was Liberalism or Christianity. Liberalism or Christianity. And that article was so well received that Machen built on it, and he published it as a book in 1923, and he changed the title to Christianity and liberalism. And you're embarking on this wonderful 14-week orientation to this work on the 100th anniversary of the publication of that, that book. This is what Machen said, uh, you can look on your handout, about writing that book. In my little book, Christianity and Liberalism, I tried to show that the issue in the church today is not between two varieties of the same religion, but at bottom between two essentially different types of thought and life. There's much interlocking of the branches, the 
the two tendencies, modernism and supernaturalism, or otherwise designated non-doctrinal religion and historic Christianity spring from different roots. Now, Machen sang a lot here, but you get the central thesis of the book, and I actually like the article title, Liberalism or Christianity, uh, because Christianity and liberalism doesn't quite pack the punch of the antithesis that Machen was getting after in, in the book. He's saying these are not two species of Christianity. Uh, these are two different religions altogether. But notice what he says here at the end. They spring from different roots. Now, we're not going to address the roots of biblical Christianity because uh, you know them quite well. Uh, Machen's going to say Christianity springs from God's historical activity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity is rooted in historical facts. We want to look this morning at the root of what he calls liberalism, or notice he says in this quote, modernism. Uh, now, the two are not totally identical, liberalism and modernism. In fact, the first thing I want to do with you this morning is define those terms. And then, secondly, I want to look at two figures who are pivotal uh, influences. They are almost the fathers of modernism, on the one hand, and theological liberalism. So when we, when we use the word liberalism, let's just get it out here. We're not directly talking about a political kind of liberalism, like the progressive Democrat Party. We're talking about um, a brand of theology that has a definable kind of time period and, and system to it. Uh, we're going to look at two figures identified with modernism and liberalism. And then if we have time, we're going to look at just a few quotes from Christianity and liberalism uh, and hopefully our background work, our spade work to dig up the roots of liberalism and modernism will illumine uh, some of the quotes that we're going to look at from the book itself. Now, some of you may not have started the book. That's okay. Uh, this will be a little preview for you. Well, let's define um, the two terms. We'll do this fairly quickly because we want to really dive into the figures, Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Schleiermacher. Modernism. What's modernism? I say here it's a late 19th, early 20th century intellectual and cultural movement uh, stemming from the 18th century Enlightenment, characterized by a deliberate departure from traditional and conventional forms, beliefs, and aesthetics, often in response to the profound changes and challenges of the modern world. And I have here Darwinism, industrialization, there are other forces. Uh, modernism's emphasis on progress was rooted in, one, the authority of human reason, and two, philosophical naturalism. Okay, that's just like a pile of words for you on Sunday morning. Um, what are we getting at here? Well, modernism, here, here are basically three things I want, I want you to get right there in the final line. M modernism was a time, um, depending on when you date it, uh, it, it, it could really begin uh, centuries earlier, but it was marked by an unbounded confidence in human ingenuity. It, it was marked by a confidence that the human mind in particular, unlocking the secrets of nature and the mechanisms of the natural world, humanity could overcome just about any, any obstacle. Poverty, disease, social problems, uh, 
the modern era was saying, we are on a one-way street up the mountain to a secular utopia. We're going to do it all. And what, what marked that optimistic, progressive outlook was the supremacy of the human mind, human reason, as the arbiter of truth. And two, an emphasis on nature and the structures of the natural world. Now, what influenced modernism? I said here Darwinism. You can think of the Darwinian influence. You know, Darwinism was saying there's an evolutionary movement to all natural things. Uh, think of Darwinism applied to all of life. Uh, we are the fittest. Uh, we are progressing through life. We are evolving naturally upward into a more profound level of existence. And, and all of this is taking place, we're going to see, apart from God's involvement in the world. All this is going to be viewing nature as a closed system where, where God is not only not involved, but he cannot be known. Machen looked at the modern era, and he said that it brought many benefits. Uh, there, there were technological advances, modern medicine, um, things for which we can be very thankful. Uh, but as you're going to read in, in Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, he also says the modern era has brought about uh, some negative consequences as well. Uh, he talks about the, uh, the, high, um, the high reaches of art uh, becoming drab and monochrome and boring. And, uh, you know, you think of modern architecture. Uh, it's just basically like a concrete uh, parking garage, you know, uh, form and function, function over form, right? Um, Machen worried about the increasing control of a socialist state, a decline in education and, and freedom to educate children in the liberal arts and language and in Christian principles. The great musicians and sculptors and painters of, of the Renaissance and other uh, eras of humanity were gone. Um, and as you can imagine, this, this movement of modernism impacted the church. Here's the key question for us this morning. How can Christianity survive in a modern world? How can Christianity, with its emphasis on the supernatural activity of God, miracles, the resurrected Christ, how, how can Christianity survive in a culture dominated by modern thinking and modern thought, closed system, the autonomy, the supremacy of, of human reason, and so on? Well, the answer to that question among some was liberalism. Theological liberalism. What is that? A school of the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, loosely united by the belief that the proper response to modern thought was to make radical alterations to Christian doctrine. Liberalism held that the Bible, for example, was to be treated just like any other book. That is, it's, it's not the inspired written word of God. Uh, the Bible's meaning was to be found through strict historical investigation. Again, let's use our mind, let's examine nature. In this case, let's examine the natural writings of fallible men and see what, what actually took place behind what they wrote. Um, and the Bible's supernatural claims had to be adjusted. Okay, that's the understatement of the year. Adjusted uh, for a new age. Uh, no prophecies, no miracles, no divine Jesus, no bodily resurrection. What we get in the, what we get in the Bible is 
is the record of what holy people thought about divine things. But the modern mind has this newfound ability to look through the superstitions of the past and try to diagnose what are the forces in human life and history that gave rise to these outdated beliefs. That's kind of what what the modern mind uh, wanted to do with the Bible. Uh, Liberalism said, uh, yes, let's do that, uh, but we're going to try to salvage religion. We're going to try to salvage being a Christian in a modern world. So you can think of liberalism as a great salvaging movement. So the, the, the ship of Christianity was sailing across the sea. It hits the storm of modernism, and suddenly all kinds of holes are poked in the bottom of the boat. And liberalism is trying desperately to throw the water out of the boat and keep the ship sailing. And in the process, they change the entire ship, Okay, if that metaphor works for you. Listen to what uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick and, and maybe uh, uh, Pastor Gilbert introduced him to you. He, he preached a very famous sermon called Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And, and this is something that he said. We must be able to think our Christian faith clear through in modern terms. So, so Fosdick is a liberal, and he's saying we need to reinterpret the Christian faith in modernist terms. Uh, we need to ground Christian, Christian faith not in doctrine, but, but we're, we need to say that it's more of a lifestyle. Uh, we're going to get more into what it actually is, according to the liberals, in just a minute. Well, J.D. Rockefeller, as you may know, loved Fosdick's sermon so much Uh, that he paid for some 130,000 copies to be printed up. He wanted it distributed to every Protestant minister in America. Others uh, challenged uh, modernist liberal outlook of the gospel. In fact, an archbishop of Canterbury named William Temple famously said this, why anyone should have troubled to crucify the Christ of liberal Protestantism has always been a mystery. Uh, Because what Christ becomes in liberalism is just a, a a good moral teacher. Uh, Another thinker uh, named Richard Niebuhr would describe the modernist gospel this way. A God without wrath brought people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Uh, Niebuhr was right in that regard. Uh, He looked at all the adjustments that liberalism had made to the gospel. He said there's no offense in the gospel. There's no recognition of sin. There's no divine Jesus. There's no need for God's wrath. Um, It's a completely different gospel. You'll have opportunity to learn more about what does liberalism say about things like God and man, Bible, Christ, salvation, the church, and so on when you walk through the chapters of Machen's book. But let's go back behind liberalism and behind modernism to try to dig up some of the roots of this. Okay, And and I want to start with Immanuel Kant. Um, Immanuel Kant, you can see he he dies almost at the turn of the century. He dies in 1804. Uh, This is a philosopher who was born in in a place called Konigsberg, Prussia. He was an eccentric man. He would rise at 5 a.m. every day. He would work until 7 at his desk when he would change out of his nightcap and robe. He would work until 1 p.m. where he would take his single meal for the day followed by a walk alone, irrespective of the weather, uh, when he would only breathe through his nose, uh, believing, that he thought, believing that it was healthy for the body and liberating to the mind. Uh, Kant didn't like noise. 
He thought conversation should always take place indoors since it required one to breathe through the mouth. And he was so punctual on his post-lunch walk that it was said that the town of Konigsberg set their watch uh, to when he would pass by. He grew up in Konigsberg. He studied in Konigsberg. He taught there. He lived there. He died there. He never ventured beyond the city limits. And he is one of the most influential philosophers in human history. Kant is as influential as Plato and Aristotle. He publishes a book uh, or a work in 1784 called What is Enlightenment? Okay, Kant comes at the end of what we know as the Enlightenment, and he really sums up what is the spirit of the Enlightenment that propels the modern age. And he writes this, Enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage. Okay, what is tutelage? Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his understanding without direction from another. And then he uses this Latin phrase, sapere audet, dare to know, have the courage to use your own reason. That is the motto of the Enlightenment. What's Kant saying here? Well, well, he's saying that, that the spirit of the Enlightenment is to throw off external authorities, primarily the authority of the church, and the authority of Scripture, and to use your own reason. Now, let's just pause right now, and let's remember that God gave us minds as his image, minds that we are to use, um, but the way God gave us minds to use was, was to use reason under the light of his word. Uh, reason is to be subordinated and submitted to the light of God's revelation. That's when we use our minds the best. That's when we use our minds in accord with their design. So we're not to shut down our brains and read the Bible. We're to use our brains reading the Bible, but always recognizing the Bible's supreme authority. Well, Kant is saying, no, we, we need to take reason, and we need, to, we need to elevate it above all previous authorities. We need to elevate it above Scripture. That is the motto of the Enlightenment. Um, now, the real question we want to wrestle with, and this is going to be the most challenging thing of the morning, okay, is how did Kant see reason as supreme? How did he envision the mind working in order uh, to understand human experience and the world? And how did Kant's understanding of human reason impact the way Schleiermacher is going to reinterpret Christianity. Because remember, liberalism is the, is the theological sister to the modern era. Uh, liberalism is trying to accommodate uh, the themes of the modern era. Well, how does, how does Kant set the stage for Schleiermacher's reinterpretation of the Christian faith? That is the central question for us this morning. And in order to answer that question, we need to know how did Kant envision the mind at work? Okay, let's dive into the weird world of philosophers for a second. Um, prior to Kant, there were philosophers who were trying to figure out how do we make sense of the world. And there were basically two schools. Uh, on the one hand, there was the school that said, here's how you make sense of the world, here's how you actually build stable knowledge. 
close your mind, you close your eyes, you sit back in the lazy boy, and you think. True, stable knowledge comes from rational contemplation. We could call this the stop and think method. And, and, and the guy who was the champion of the stop and think method was a guy named Rene Descartes. You probably know the famous line from Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Right? Already you can kind of see, okay, he's just thinking about thinking. And the one thing he could never deny is that he is the one doing the thinking. So at least I have a stable reason to think that I exist. Because I'm thinking about thinking. Okay? Weird, wonderful world of philosophy, okay? The rationalists. Descartes was the champion of team rationalists. Stop and think. The other team were known as the empiricists. The empiricists. The empiricists said, no, the way you gain knowledge of the world is not by sitting back, closing your eyes, and stopping and thinking with Descartes, but the empiricists said, you've got to go out and look. You've got to touch you got to taste, you got to experiment. Not stop and think, but look and see. Look and see. Get out of the lazy boy, look at that plant outside, examine the variety of things in the world. Empirical experience, right? Sensations. That's how you build knowledge. Fast forward, both schools end in failure. The rationalists can't, they start disagreeing with one another. The empiricists end in total skepticism. And if we had another class, we could talk about why that's the case. Um, but a Scottish thinker named David Hume craters the empiricists into total darkness of skepticism. Kant comes along and he says, I gotta save knowledge. I gotta figure out how the mind works in its experience of the world. And Kant said, I know how to do it. I'm going to take the best of team rationalism and the best of team empiricism, and I'm going to try to put them together. Because by themselves, they haven't got the solution. But I can put the best of both worlds together. And this is what Kant did. And what he did is known as a Copernican revolution in human thought. A Copernican revolution. You remember Copernicus? Um, uh, Championed the idea that that the that the that the that the Earth is actually revolving around the Sun. That 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 it's not that the Earth is stationary and everything's revolving around the Earth, but that the Earth is actually moving itself. Now it'll be clear in just a minute why Kant's revolution is called a Copernican revolution. Let's just jump to to his conclusion. Okay, this is going to sound very weird, uh, but I just want you to bear with me. Kant held that intelligible human experience, what you're experiencing right now in a spatial, temporal, color-filled environment with people and me talking, that this experience was in part generated by the mind actively conceptualizing and organizing the sensations that are coming at The mind is actively forging the experience that you have. Okay, let me, let me try to explain this in, a, in simple terms. Before Kant, it was held that the mind, to understand the world, had to like 
understand the world out there. Like there were structured things, there was an order to the world outside the mind, and in order to understand that world, you had to adapt your mind to what was out there. And you're sitting there like, yeah, it's God's world. This is how we understand. We have to, we have to examine the world as God made it. For the sake of argument, scrap all of that and understand that Kant is saying, rather than actively exploring the world out there, yes, certain sensations are coming at you from the world out there, but what generates the experience that you have is an active conceptualizing and ordering contribution of your, your mind to actually produce the experience that you're having. The mind has like these categories that put together the sensations that are coming at you. The sensations are, are buzzing, they're confused, and it's actually the mind's imposing of its categories that put things together and make it nice and neat and orderly. This is how Kant put it. Hitherto, it's, this is a very somewhat confusing quote. The final line is most important. Hitherto, it's been assumed, should say it, not is, that all our knowledge must conform to objects. That is, that we should look out into the world and try to adapt our mind to what's out there. But all attempts to extend our knowledge of objects by, by establishing something in regard to them a priori by means of concepts have on this assumption ended in failure. Now listen to this. We must make better trial... We must therefore make trial whether we may not have more success in the tasks of metaphysics if we suppose that objects must conform to knowledge. Um, here's, here's an example. Here's a little illustration. I say the mind is an ice tray or a sausage maker. Uh, when we used to live in the Northeast, uh, sometimes I would take my boys to a place called Moonlight Diner. Moonlight Diner. And at Moonlight Diner in the Northeast, they serve something called Scrapple. Does anyone know what Scrapple is? Okay. Scrapple. Uh, okay. Scrapple. Scrapple's like the leftover uh, parts from the from pork uh, that that they just scramble up and mix all together, and you just eat it without thinking about what you're eating. Okay. You don't want to order Scrapple. Okay, unless you're a few few members from Grace PC. However, if you take a scrapple and you crank it through a sausage-making machine, right, it pops out of the sausage-making machine in these nice, delectable sausage links. It's all mixed up and mushy on your plate, but if you crank it through the sausage-maker, it looks a lot more appetizing. Okay, Kant was saying your mind is like the sausage grinder. The scrapple is like the senses that are coming at you. And the mind meets the senses and forges them into organized, understandable experience. And the idea that your mind was actually contributing to the construction of your experience was brand new. Brand new. Your mind is actually contributing to the experience that you have. Now, Kant was not a relativist. He didn't believe that there was no truth out there. He actually believed that everybody's mind did this the same way. But, let me just give you a little secret, because we're going to have to move on to Schleiermacher. You can see that once 
once the categories of the mind begin to begin to crack and other thinkers come along um, and say, you know what? What Kant said, the mind contributes to human experience. Those are actually informed by different interests of power. And Freud would say a kind of suppressed sexual drive. And, and others would say there are social interests that are informing how people experience the world. Um, there's an era in the 1960s that's going to come called postmodernism that says you can have your truth and I can have my truth because our minds are contributing an ex their own contribution to the world that, that gives us different conceptions of reality. And that's all okay. So, so think of Kant laying the groundwork for Oprah Winfrey saying, you have your truth and I have my truth. Speak your truth, and I'll speak my truth. Okay? Kant would say, you're experiencing your truth, but your truth is just like everybody else's truth, but not because you're examining an objective world out there. It's just that everybody's mind is making the same kind of forging, organizing power uh, to human experience. Let me give you one example, and then we've got to move on. One of the things that the mind contributes to the world, according to Kant, is the principle of cause and effect. The principle of cause and effect. You can see um, two cue balls on the pool table, one moving, hitting another one, and then the other one moving. Um, but that's just a sensory experience. The actual causal relation, the cause and effect between the two cue balls is actually a contribution of your mind. Uh, you, you can begin to see, uh, here's another one, space and time. Space and time are, are contributions of the mind uh, concept. Now we're really getting into the wild world of philosophy. Um, okay, I, I was wrestling with how to explain this, and this is the last thing I'll do. I, I pulled up ChatGPT, and I said, Explain Kant's Copernican revolution in thought to a ninth grader. Here's ChatGPT. Okay, the world is ending. I'm quoting from ChatGPT in Sunday school. This is what it said. Before Kant, many philosophers thought that our knowledge of the world worked like a one-way street. They believed that our minds were like passive mirrors, reflecting the world as it truly is. In other words, they thought we could see and understand things as they exist independently of us. However, Kant flipped this idea on its head. He compared his philosophical revolution to what happened in astronomy when Copernicus showed that the Earth isn't at the center of the universe, but rather it orbits the sun. In a similar way, Kant argued that it's not the world that shapes our knowledge. Instead, it's our minds that actively shape how we understand the world. For example, we use concepts like space, time, and causality to organize our experiences. This means we don't see the world as it is in itself. We see it through the lens of our mental concepts. I thought that was pretty good. Pretty good. All right. One of the effects of this mind is active in the organizing of human experience is that God is nowhere to be found. God is ruled out. It is it is the imposition of the principle of cause and effect 
in the categories of the understanding that rule out divine intervention, right? There's no room for God and his self-disclosure to our minds through his revealed word. So what's going to happen to the Christian faith? Uh, You can see Greg Bontz in this quote, uh, what happens in the shaping influence of modernism, deterministic science disqualifies miracles, Uh, positivistic sociology that is based on observation relativizes morality, historical criticism faulted the Bible, Kant's transcendental dialecticism, okay, that's a mouthful, invalidated cognitive revelation. God is nowhere to be found. What happens? Well, Schleiermacher happens. And here's what Schleiermacher does. Schleiermacher, rather than challenging the Copernican revolution of Kant, rather than saying, no, Kant, we need to keep the Bible supreme, understand that there is a a self-contained triune God who created the world as a revelation of his glory, and we are called to think God's thoughts after him in our examination of the beautiful world that reveals his glory, instead of submitting our reason to the light of his revealed word, I'm going to concede everything to Kant. I'm going to concede that the mind imposes its categories on human experience, and divine revelation is now impossible. And we cannot know God by way of his sovereign revelation. Schleiermacher, by the way, grew up also in Prussia. Uh, He was born in a small town now in Poland. He was raised in a Christian home, uh, a very pietistic home, a very much of an emphasis on experience and conversion, less on doctrine. Um, he, He writes later that in his Christian schooling, his classmates would smuggle in modernist books, including Kant's critique of pure reason studied Kant's philosophy, and guess what? He reaches a young adulthood, and he rejects the faith of his parents. He eventually comes back around to the Christian faith, but only to reinterpret it. How did Schleiermacher reinterpret the Christian faith? Well, I already mentioned that he said Kant was right. Divine revelation understandable, cognitive, propositional revelation from God, impossible. But God can be known in another way. And the way that we do a workaround around Kant and the modern era is by saying this, that God may not be able to be known, but God can be experienced. God can be experienced. There is a faculty, in addition to your mind, known as the faculty of feeling. And God can be known, in a sense, through feeling. Feeling that there is something infinite and mystical that binds this world together. Something that you can't really articulate, but something that is real nonetheless. So you can concede everything to modern scholarship, the critical approaches to the Bible, Kant's understanding of the way the mind is supreme in the, in the investigation of the world, and, and Schleiermacher can say, I can still carve out this additional area that, that the modern approach to knowledge can't touch because it's not dealing with knowledge per se. It's dealing with a feeling of something that, that courses through the world. Um, 
it's kind of like standing on the edge of the shoreline and uh, instead of just you know examining the contents in a lab of the sand and the and the ocean water you just sort of stand at the edge of the shore and just feel it right you feel it and if somebody came along and said hey you know the tar content in the in the water and everything you'd say stop talking to me about that i'm just experiencing the beach right now right or you're sitting in front of a steak and and like the pat of butter is just like melting over your filet mignon and uh, and somebody comes to you and says, you know, there's a there's a like a cholesterol content that you need to know, and and that's the modernist scientific Kantian examiner of nature, and you just say, get that out of my way. I'm just gonna feel and enjoy this steak as I put it in my mouth. Okay, this is Schleiermacher's approach to religion. Schleiermacher, what was he doing? He was drawing on a um, a, a feeling that was in the air. Uh, there was a movement known as Romanticism. Um, and, and he was picking up on rom the Romantics uh, who emphasized the spirit of the infinite found in all things finite. And he said, you know what? Everybody really likes Romanticism. That's actually what Christianity is all about. Uh, Schleiermacher took the approach of putting his finger to the wind and saying, what is prevailing in our culture today? That is what Christianity is all about. Um, more broadly, some have called it newspaper theology, the, the, the general approach. You look at the newspaper, what the New York Times editorial board believes, what the modern sensibilities of ethics are today, and you adapt Christianity to support that. That's a liberal move. That's what Schleiermacher was doing in his own day. The way that it was expressed in Schleiermacher's day was that religion, piety, was centered on feeling. Um, Schleiermacher moves to Berlin. He becomes friends with all the cool artists and, and writers of the day. And, uh, and he starts talking to them about this, and they urge him to write this down. And he writes a very famous work called on religion, now here's the subtitle, speeches to its cultured despisers. Schleiermacher's writing to the elites of his own day. And he's saying, you know, you know everything that you thought was Christianity? Priesthood, sacrifice, sin, repentance, divinity. That's actually not Christianity. Christianity is what you already appreciate in your salons and, and in your writing clubs and in the elite circles of our day in Berlin. He says, he says this in, in the speeches. What I assert and what I should like to establish for religion include the following. It springs necessarily and by itself from the interior of every better soul. It has its own province in the mind in which it reigns sovereign. And it is worthy of moving the noblest and the most excellent by means of his innermost power and by having its innermost essence known by him. Now, what, what, what jumps out at you in that quote, uh, just in general, at a 3,000-foot level? Religion has its basis where? In me. In me. I turn inward. I examine my own feeling of just sort of being dependent on something greater than myself. And that is what is at the heart of religion, according to Schleiermacher. 
not looking outside of myself to God and his sovereign revelation, certainly not looking at God's activity in history. It's all coming from within, a deep experience that I cannot even articulate. In fact, if I try to articulate it, it kind of falls through my fingers like sand. And, and just to give you a sense of the kind of interpretations that is doing, he said, that's actually what doctrine is. Doctrine is this deep feeling expressed through the church in speech. Doctrine is like the fallible attempt by modern religious man to try to articulate what cannot be articulated. And the result of this for Schleiermacher and for the liberal church is that, listen to this, everybody can articulate their religious experience in their own way. They can articulate their religious experience in ways that contradict one another, and it's all good. Because what really matters is the feeling deep down not what you actually say about it. So I say here on the handout, one of the results is the acceptability of diverse religious experiences. Once you redefine religion, and this is the famous phrase, he called religion the feeling of absolute dependence. The feeling of absolute dependence. Schleiermacher lays the groundwork for the, the Bible study practice of everybody kind of opening their Bible, sitting around, reading a passage, and then asking this question. How does that text make you feel? And then everybody kind of sort of goes around the room, or what does this text, if you've ever been in a Bible study like this, what am I going to say? What does this text mean to you? Okay, Schleiermacher gave a programmatic framework for that being the question to ask. It's because, for him, religion was this feeling of absolute dependence, and no matter how you articulated it doctrinally, it didn't really matter. Second fallout, of course, the relativizing of doctrine as an expression of pious feeling. This is what he says about doctrine, or this is what Brian Garrish says about doctrine. Doctrines are not propositions one has to believe upon pain of eternal damnation. And I write here in my notes, this is a little pejorative. Uh, you might want to articulate doctrine in a slightly different way. Uh, together with outward actions, they are ways, this is what doctrine is, ways in which the religious community externalizes the piety by which it lives. Doctrine is just a social expression of religious feeling. You can begin to see, and I know we're running out of time here, you can begin to see Kant, Copernican revolution of thought, right? The mind is supreme. Not only is the mind supreme, but the mind actively contributes to human experience in such a way that rules out revelation from God. Schleiermacher comes along and says, Kant, two thumbs up, buddy. Let's redefine Christianity to fit the modernist impulses. And I'm going to carve out feeling as the alternative route to knowing God. But when I use the word God, I'm not talking about the triune God revealed in the Bible. I'm talking about, this is, this is his definition of God, roughly, I'm paraphrasing. Whatever the source is of my religious feeling. 
that is God. He called it the whence of human experience, the whence of religious feeling, the place from which religious feeling arises. That's God. God gets defined in terms of my religious feeling, not in terms of external objective revelation. All right, let's just in our final minutes here, let's look at a few lines from Christianity and liberalism, and we're going to see some of these things popping up. Uh, the chapter on God and man. In modern liberalism, the sharp distinction between God and the world is broken down, and the name God is applied to the mighty world process itself. Uh, this is Machen talking about liberalism. Thus, the gospel story of the incarnation, according to modern liberalism, is sometimes thought of as a symbol of the general truth that man at his best is one with God. Okay, when he says the word God is applied to the mighty world process, he's talking about that mystical unity. He's talking about that infinite something that binds everything together. You don't want to live in a world where the only way you can experience the beach is by examining the sand, do you? The chemical contents of the sand. You don't want to live in a world where when you sit down to eat a filet, you're, you're only thinking about the cholesterol content. No, don't you want to live in a world where there's something more, where you can experience something deeper? That's what Schleiermacher is giving to the people. What about on the Bible? Christianity is founded upon the Bible, Machen says. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Well, he's talking about Schleiermachian emotions. He's talking about the way that Kant has ruled out divine revelation. And so we have this mystical, deep feeling of God. On salvation, liberalism finds salvation in man. Liberalism, uh, Christianity finds it in the act of God. What is salvation for Schleiermacher? Salvation is nothing more than cultivating what he called God consciousness. And God consciousness was this, this intuitive feeling that, that, uh, that you have a connection with the divine. That, that intuitive connection with the divine is salvation for Schleiermacher. And then on the church, the liberal preacher says to the conservative party in the church, let us unite in the same congregation, since, of course, doctrinal differences are trifles. But it is the very essence of conservatism in the church to regard doctrinal differences as no trifles but as the matters of supreme moment. Why does the liberal preacher say we can unite despite doctrinal differences? Well, it's because doctrine, according to the liberal preacher, is just a fallible, second-order expression of religious feeling. Uh, what really matters is the deeper feeling that unites us all, not the doctrines that come as a result of that feeling. Well, I've taken us past 10.15. Uh, should we should we just close it down? All right. Well, thank you for your patience and uh, for your attention, and let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for for the truth and power of your word. Thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light for our path. Thank you, Father, that you call us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Father, we pray that your word would help us to be discerning, to be understanding of the world in which we live. To be, to be diligent, to hold fast to the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, and to contend for it in faith and love for the glory of our God. Uh, for the sake of this world, we pray this in Jesus' name.